Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Your genes can tell you so much more than your ancestry. Enter Color, the genetic test that unlocks powerful insights into your health. Color is a doctor-ordered saliva test that you can do at home. Gain insights on certain cancers and heart conditions that may run in your family, and whether you should start mammograms earlier or if exercise is enough for your heart health. Get $25 off when you visit color.com slash pantsuit. I think I looked it up somewhere. It said something about 15 years that the U.S. has provided subject matter experts in law enforcement training to the Palestinian Authority Security Forces. Wow. And that completely blows people's minds, right? And that's a joint effort between the Department of State and the U.S. Security Coordinator. That is a DOD position. So when someone hears we're spending money in Palestine, people's minds just completely explode. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. 
welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are so excited to be with y'all today as we creep closer and closer to the Christmas break. We will be sharing some pre-recorded content and taking a few days off, but we have lots of year-end wrap-up and wishes for 2019 that we'll be sharing over the course of the next two weeks. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about funding the government. As you probably have heard repeatedly on your national news sources, funding for the government runs out on December 21st, so we're going to be talking about that. In our main segment, we're going to be sharing a really fascinating conversation with a listener about government contracts and that process. It's a little in the weeds, but I think it's so important just to remind all of us that there is so much more to the federal government than the political narrative. And then to close out, we'll be sharing what we're thinking about outside of politics this week. Also, we want to make sure that you're not missing out on anything over on Patreon. We have a lot of stuff living there right now. Sarah and I recorded fairly, like, legitimate disagreement for us in terms of how we feel about multi-level marketing and the Dream podcast. And so if you are at our $15 a month level, you can get that bonus episode. It was, I think, one of the more contentious conversations that we've had lately, which reminded me it's so much fun to just talk about actual policy and what the government should be doing and how the economy should be working. So I think that was a really good conversation. We have lots in terms of the nightly nuance. If you're following Brexit, I've tried to spotlight what's going on with the Brexit discussions and a level of detail that we just can't get to on the podcast here. This week, I'm going to be spending some time on court decisions because lots of important activity happening in the judiciary. So join us over on Patreon if you aren't there already, because you will get lots more nuance in the process. So today we're going to talk about government funding. Funding for several departments within the government runs out on December 21st. We saw, uh, I don't want to describe this, a conversation, a spat, an argument, a uh, dramatic play for the the television cameras between (laughs) Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, and Donald Trump with regards to this. My favorite moment is when Donald Trump proudly... And he used the word proudly said, I would I would proudly shut down the government to fund the wall, which I just want to take a hot moment. What happened to Mexico playing for the wall? I thought Mexico was going to pay for the wall. Do you remember that? He has explained now that Mexico is going to pay for the wall one way or the other. And he thinks that his new trade agreement accomplishes that. That doesn't make any sense. OK, we're going to walk through the specific departments and areas that are the funding runs out for on December 21st. Can we say before we talk about that, that there is this urgent deadline approaching everybody's going on vacation. It's hard to get members to show up to vote. They took a six day weekend. The House just took a six day weekend. Yeah, they don't come back to Wednesday, but put a pin in that because I have something to say for that during our compliment the other side. Okay, perfect. I'm going to start with the farm bill, which I've alluded to many times on Patreon and here on the podcast because I am not a fan of what passed. But let's just step back and talk about what the farm bill really means. This has been happening since 1933, so it really started with the New Deal. It is a colloquial name for an omnibus bill that gets reviewed and renewed about every five years and contains everything in the purview of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and that's a lot. It impacts trade, farm credit, conservation, food assistance programs, which is always the subject of intense congressional discussion, and rural development. So these bills were intended when they started during the New Deal to help struggling farmers during the Depression and ensure that the nation had an adequate food supply despite the Depression-era economy. In the late 1990s, 
we started making direct cash payments to grain farmers as a way of dealing with excess supply and low prices. That's part of the farm bill. We subsidize biofuels under the farm bill. And as I said, this is where the food stamp program has lived, now called SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. That's about 80% of the funding authorized in the farm bill. It is enormously expensive. I haven't been able to find the total cost of this year's farm bill, but versions of it are about $870 billion over the next 10 years. The controversy over the farm bill this year has been going on for quite some time. Republicans wanted to add work requirements for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And Sarah and I have talked in previous episodes about how work requirements are one of those ideas that sounds really good. It was tried during the Clinton welfare reform era and turned into not a good idea. And we'll put a link in the show notes to one of our previous discussions about how the evidence just doesn't support work requirements as a way to improve our approach to poverty in this country. So we could get derailed on that for a long time. And I think it's a really important discussion, but we've had it elsewhere and I'm sure we'll come back to it in the future. So you had Republicans wanting to add that work requirement, Democrats voting against the work requirement, the Freedom Caucus also voting against the version of the Farm Bill that added that work requirement because the Freedom Caucus doesn't know how to vote yes. They don't know how to vote yes. That's not a thing they do. They wanted to use the Farm Bill as leverage on border wall funding, which is what the kind of entire shutdown drama is about right now. The work requirements would have saved, and I'm putting saved in air quotes here, an estimated $1.5 billion. But the problem is that doesn't take into account all the costs associated with enforcing work requirements, which are substantial, and just the general understanding that they don't work very well. And we can't really quantify the damage done to a program when a requirement that doesn't work very well is added. So, A compromise version has been passed. One major aspect of the compromise version is the legalization of hemp, which is a big win for Republicans in tobacco producing states. And so a whole series of regulations now are going to need to be kicked off about hemp and how we're going to grow and sell hemp. But that has happened. And I think that's a fine thing that happened with Mm -hmm. the farm bill. My problem is that we already have layers of subsidies and programs built from the 1930s that rarely get overhauled and need to be. We just need a fresh look at all of this, right? Instead of just continuing to layer on and layer on. But instead of doing that, my party of purported fiscal responsibility, (laughs) expanded subsidies for farm families under this farm bill. And these expanded subsidies are controversial because they should be. (laughs) The idea is that with large family farms, you have family members who might be managers of the farm, but not actually people who work the land. And this farm bill provides, in some instances, six-figure subsidies to nieces and nephews of people who are managers of farms. So they might do a little paperwork throughout the year, but they're not actually growing our food. And I just don't think our government should be issuing $125,000 checks to people like that. 
And again, I understand provisions like that start with good intentions. There are some people who do need to be helped, I believe, in agriculture as a very important component of our country, not just for our economy, but I think that there is a a big kind of soulful aspect of growing our own food. I think it's environmentally important, but I do not like the handouts, frankly, that, that happen in giant omnibus bills like this without sufficient scrutiny. So that's my beef with this farm bill. So we also have a couple other sections that are up for debate with regards to funding the government that there has not been a compromise reached. One of the biggest is disaster relief funding. And this has a really interesting history. So the idea that the federal government should step in and provide disaster relief is a relatively new idea. There was a major, major earthquake in Alaska in 1964, and Alaska had only been a state for about five years when this happened, and so everybody could see, like, Alaska's not up to this task, because traditionally at that point in time, states and private organizations had been leading the way in disaster response, but you had Lyndon Johnson, and at this point, there was a very, in history, there was a very expansive view of the federal government, and the administration was actively trying to bring states up to sort of federal standards with regards to civil rights, so they thought, hey, we should do this with disaster relief and the federal government should step up for Alaska. Well, once they stepped up for Alaska, it wasn't like every other state in the union was going to be like, oh, that's fine. That was just a one off. Everybody else wanted a piece of the pie, eventually leading to the passage of the Stafford Act in 1988, which really removed state and local governments for the most part from disaster relief and started once an area in the country was declared a national disaster, then it it meant the federal government was going to pay for fixing everything up once it had been destroyed by a national disaster. So it's really interesting. This law requires the federal government to cover at least 75% of the costs associated with presidentially designated disasters. And there's this regulation that comes from the act that stipulates that relief efforts costing a state as little as $1.43 per capita, which is so low some states can receive FEMA aid for disasters requiring as little as a million dollars. So the bar for sort of when they need relief is very low. So at this point, we have more than $90 billion in responses to national disasters, including the string of hurricanes earlier this year. Now, with regards to just this pool of money for this year, there's about $15 billion remaining in the pool, or there was about at the end of October. And so you have the terrible, terrible fires in California. At this time, the senators from California, Dianne Feinstein and Kamala Harris, say that they expect the money that's left would be sufficient to help the state with its immediate recovery needs. But Senator Patrick Leahy from the top Democrat on the appropriations told reporters at one point that he also wants to include $750 million to $720 million in disaster funding for California in the new spending bill. So you have a debate over disaster spending, which I think is really, really important and something we need to think about as a country as we move forward and the effects of climate change present themselves, particularly with regards to increasingly severe natural disasters. I don't know how we can stay on the path we're currently on. But the truth is, whether we shift the burden back to state and local government, taxes are going to have to be raised to pay for disaster relief because we are having increasing amounts of natural disasters. That's just math. I don't need to be a meteorologist or an economist. I can just do math and understand there's more. They cost more. The money has to come from somewhere. So this is one of the areas that the funding runs out for on December 21st that Congress is going to have to come to an agreement on. The other 
semi-related one is flood insurance. So the flood insurance program really needs an overhaul. There are critics of the program. Then, of course, you have lawmakers who represent really flood-prone area whose constituents depend on the National Flood Insurance Program, and they're pretty far apart on their disagreement. There's a Texas Republican, Jeb Henserling, who's denounced the program built in subsidies for many high-risk homeowners. And I mean, the argument is basically you live where there's floods. Like, we shouldn't all have to subsidize you living in floodplains or flood-prone areas. If you remove the National Flood Insurance Program and just depend on the market, the coverage would be so unaffordable for many, many people. You know, and not surprising, states like Louisiana and their congressional delegation argue that this would force homeowners to choose between insurance or other essential expenses, that it's completely unaffordable. So currently, the National Flood Insurance Program is about $20 billion in debt. And now, under the current structure, it's supposed to have some debt that you know, it's a flood insurance, pro- it's an insurance program. So there is supposed to be some debt, but it's still not healthy. It's still not, it's it's carrying too much debt at this point. And so with regards to Hurricane Harvey and other flood prone cities like Houston, either they're going to have to keep funding it under its current structure, which is carrying too much debt, or they're going to need to come to some sort of bipartisan agreement. I don't even know if it's necessarily bipartisan, but agreement between the critics and the people who live in flood-prone areas about the future of the flood insurance program. So that's the other area sort of related to disaster relief up for funding on December 21st. And the last one is another highly controversial, although I wonder why, which is the Violence Against Women Act, which was first passed in 1994 to support victims of sexual assault and domestic violence. It came sort of post-Anita Hill. And the act expired in 2011, but many of the programs that receive funding, and that's what this really, this law does, right? It authorizes funding for all sort of social service agencies that aid victims of sexual violence, rape crisis centers, domestic violence shelters, legal assistance programs, all those. And so they have to be funded. I mean, the the bill itself is basically just a funding mechanism. And so it has to have the funding in order to prevent violence against women by funding these programs that really do the -the on-the-ground work. So it was most recently reauthorized in 2013 after a pretty contentious fight. And one of the big issues with regards to the Violence Against Women Act is red flag laws, which are it's a gun violence prevention law that permits police or family members to petition a court to order the temporary removal of firearms from a person who may present a danger to others or themselves. And we've talked about this on the podcast a lot. Domestic violence is literally, literally a red flag for many mass shooters. This comes up over and over again in their history. The idea that you could flag someone with these domestic violence or family violence concerns to remove their guns, you know, seems like a no-brainer to me, but not surprisingly because it touches on gun rights is a no-go for many Republicans. And so this is what's the desire to include this in the reauthorization and funding of the Violence Against Women Act is what's holding up that area in our current budget battle. Do we think they're going to just kick the can on these areas, Beth, or what do you think is going to happen? I think they're going to get something done. I just I cannot imagine that anybody sees other than the president. I can't imagine that anybody sees an upside in not getting this work done, especially when they've worked so hard this year. And they really have to actually do the budget the right way. You know, this is what we're down to. These are very consequential areas. I just don't think anybody takes the idea of a wall seriously enough to shut down the government over it. I I could be wrong, but I hope I'm not. 
Well, this is a good transition to what you're talking about to beginning to at the beginning into our compliment the other side. This is not necessarily a compliment. I'm going to call it empathy for the other side. And there is a lot of reporting that not only did they take a six-day vacation, but they're having a lot of problems getting the either defeated or retiring Republicans to show up for votes. They've been relegated to cubicles. They don't have their offices anymore, and they're just not looking to come back to Washington. And can I just, I think funding the government's important. I think they need to come and have the votes. But can I just offer a little empathy for these members of Congress, as a person who lost their election, I have my last city commission meeting tonight, which I don't want to go to, and I have not wanted to go to the other ones. It's really not a fun task, even though it's important and it is your responsibility when you take the position. It's really not. Everyone likes to feel sort of appreciated in their work and feel understood. And so to come subject yourselves to the negativity of politics when you lost or when you've retired and you've taken what you feel like is a lot of abuse already. I just want to offer up some empathy for those members of the Republican caucus who are not showing up. I still think they should show up. I just understand the hesitation. Let me say that. Well, especially when you have a president who uses the budget as a political football, does not understand the details of it, and just at every turn makes your job harder in a way that has to be demoralizing. But a legitimate compliment from me for the other side goes to Senator Amy Klobuchar, who I just think is killing it on a bunch of fronts right now. You're really becoming a fan. I kind of dig it. I'm becoming a fan of Amy Klobuchar. So she has worked really hard to get to a compromise in the Senate on legislation to work on the process for reporting sexual harassment in Congress and in the federal government. And we'll talk more about that. I might do a nightly nuance on it later this week, but we'll definitely return to the the details of that subject because I think they're important. But she has been so focused on that issue. And that is a hard issue to be focused on, to get Congress to act in ways that let's just be honest, is against the self-interest of some of its members, that is a lift. And she has been instrumental in that lift, and I'm excited about it. I also really appreciate that post-ACA ruling, which we are talking about on IGTV today, Amy Klobuchar has consistently said to media outlets, you know what, Congress needs to get to work and fix this. And that is the right answer and a stark contrast to Chuck Schumer and others who have said, you know, we're just relying on the courts to fix what was a bad opinion. Hmm. The lasting answer here is legislative action. And I really appreciate her seeing that and saying it. And I also think she is consistently a good voice on kind of scandals that happen in the administration, the latest which has been this tragic death of a seven-year-old in the custody Hmm. of our Border Patrol agents, because she has this really powerful way of both saying there must be accountability And we must have the facts before we impose accountability. And I want those facts right away so that we can make a good decision. And I just, I appreciate you. I see you, Senator Klobuchar, and I appreciate you. The light in me recognizes the light in you. Namaste. Namaste. (laughs) Next up, we are going to talk to a listener about government contracting. And just, you're just going to have to trust us on this one, guys. We think it's really important and fascinating. And we're sharing that conversation now. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. 
The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. We are excited to be here with our listener, Ashley Cesare. Ashley, I feel like you're like a super listener because I see you on Pantsy Politics stuff and the Nuanced Life. I know you're on our book launch team. So thank you for being so awesome and being part of our community. And Ashley reached out during our guest host contest and had such an interesting perspective on government contracts, which is this really consequential process that I think so few of us know anything about. So Ashley, thank you for being here to explain this to us. I'm so excited to be here. So tell everybody about just kind of the framework. Why why do you know about government contracts and what specific aspect of this did you want to discuss today? 
My entry into the field was really entertaining. I was working with a temp agency. I was really lost after college. I majored in Spanish and my dream was to work as a foreign service officer in Central America. That was my that was my dream. I went to Mexico while I was in college and just fell in love. And so I'm working with this temp agency. I get a phone call. Can you meet with this company at this time? Sure. Had no idea what they did. And at the time, our company website was really primitive. We only had about 50 employees. It was really small. So I had no idea what they did. And I go to the interview. They say, we need somebody who speaks Spanish because we have had a few incidents where people have been trying to communicate with our Spanish-speaking local national employees. And Google Translate has failed us to the point of embarrassment. So we need you. And I said, sure, great, can't wait. I had no idea what this company did for the first week that I worked there. (laughs) It's been three years and I just can't imagine doing anything else. So Ashley, when we're talking about government contracts and your company's interaction with the federal government, just to kind of level set for everyone, we're talking about how agencies of the federal government, like any other organization, need to purchase goods and services. And there is a complex process in place to make sure that taxpayer funds are being spent wisely and in a non-discriminatory way and in a compliant way as government agencies are choosing from whom they're going to buy goods and services. Do I have that right? Yes. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about that process? And I know that your company particularly focuses on the State Department. And I think it's good to kind of now zoom in on one agency, but knowing that most agencies work in a similar fashion. My company is a little bit split between the Department of Defense and Department of State. When I first started, it was about 70-30 DOD, DOS. As the world changed, this sounds so opposite of what's happening in the news, right? But actually, the majority of the work that we're finding is State Department work. The DOD work is going away because mm. there's so much work going opening up for GS employees. They're not outsourcing as much because they're hiring people to work for the government. Mm. DOS still says, nope, third-party contractors are the easiest to work with. They don't have to pay them benefits. They have a really straightforward relationship. And they these individuals, it's very important in all agencies, if you are a contractor, to identify yourself as a contractor. So it gives them a lot more structure in terms of, you know, keeping people within their scope. So is your company providing products or services? We are a professional services company. Um, We have not gotten to the point that we are producing any kind of widgets. We are providing subject matter experts with our current contract with the state department. So I'm so fascinated by that. It does seem like something the government should just have as a, as an employee, if you're talking about subject matter experts and not necessarily contractors. One of the benefits to having the subject matter experts as third party contractors is they can get these reports from the SMEs and decide whether or not they want to use their inputs. Essentially, you can have somebody work for an entire year on a contract, develop this beautiful work plan and analysis, and then the government can say, thanks for your effort, but we're not going to do anything with that. Um, oh, that so is- th- it gives them kind of the freedom to, to do that. And I've seen it happen. 
I've seen it happen with products that I was really surprised that they didn't go with. And then there, I've seen it happen in cases where it just, it wasn't mutually working out. So they're just con they're trying to decide if they're going to pay for the report. They're not paying for all the time it researches to put to the port together because the report's sort of like a proposal for the contract. Is in, that right? in terms of in terms of the third party contractors actually performing work, that means the contractors already won the work. So they're already paying for it. It's just a matter of whether or not they're gonna actually execute what oh, the okay. what the advisor has recommended. Interesting. So let's go through the process then. I work at the State Department. I want to hire a subject matter expert to produce a report for me on something related to Central America. And I put out a request for proposals, yes, and companies like yours bid to do this work for me. And what kinds of information do you share with me as I'm making these decisions? It's all going to be defined in the request for proposal. State Department requests for proposals are really kind of interesting because they include so many appendices, the statement Mm -hmm. of work for each position. Often it'll include a calendar because if you're working in a foreign country, you've got to pay attention to federal holidays there. And so there's so many pieces to it. So essentially, we're going to give you a staffing plan. We're going to give you a mobilization plan. If we are taking over an existing contract, we'll give you a transition plan for the previous contractor to gracefully bow out and for us to seamlessly move into that role. And anything else that's required, if we're supposed to provide this, this isn't incredibly common, but sometimes they'll ask the contractor to demonstrate that the contractor, the company knows the subject really well. Other cases, they want you to provide resumes that the the individuals that you're proposing to work know what's going on. Because Mm -hmm. the joke with project management and government contracting is, I do not need to know how to build an airplane to be a project manager on a contract that's supposed to build airplanes. Hmm. I just have to know what the customer needs, what the deliverables are, and all of that. That's what we hire the subject matter experts for. So to abbreviate that, I say as the State Department, here's what I need to happen. And I have some specific questions for you about how you're going to make that happen. And then your company says back, yes, we can do that. Here is how we will do it. Here are the people that we'll use to do it. And here's how we're going to price it. Correct. So you'll have two volumes. The volume one will be, and this is kind of universal across the whole of, of, of government in the acquisitions areas. You're going to have a technical volume. That's anywhere from, I've seen 20 pages to 200 pages of how we're going to do it. And then you'll have another volume that's the pricing volume. That's how much it's going to cost. And your evaluation factors, there's two very different schools of thought. And I have worked with both. And people can develop their own opinions on this. But there's the lowest price technically acceptable. We give you the the, the, the customer gives us... The, the technical requirements, and we demonstrate that we can do the bare minimum, and then it's a matter of price. There is also best value, which may in some cases mean that another company did price the work lower, but you have proven that you may have the perfect team to execute the work. It just might cost them a little bit more, and the customer can choose the best value. 
So I have experience with RFPs in the private sector. I will tell you, I have never found this to be a process that feels like it promotes efficiency. Because yeah. <laughs> as you said, like it is just so voluminous. And all of these folks are putting in tons of time and effort just to respond to the proposal. And then they have to wait through the selection process. And we're just creeping up now on what you wanted to talk about, right, which is after the selection process happens. So State Department reviews all these hundred page, you know, several hundred page proposals and they choose someone and they say, Ashley's company, congratulations, you get this work. Yes. Then people who were in the process have an opportunity to protest that decision. They do. So there will be an opportunity for everybody who typically how this is supposed to work is that the the winning company will either be notified first or last, depends on the, the contracting officer. And then all of the companies that submitted proposals that did not win will be essentially told, thank you for your submission, but X company has won. They have a certain number of days to request essentially an explanation from the contracting office of why they didn't win. With that, they have the opportunity to file a protest. And some of them are very legitimate protests. Some of them may be, you know, I really do think, especially in best value, I really do think that we can offer a better value because X. Maybe they were able to secure a vendor that the winning company was not able to secure. And we know that that's the that's preferred vendor. That happens sometimes with, with translators. So they submit their protest. And then the Government Accountability Office has 100 days to respond. And they don't respond in order of simplicity of the protest. They don't respond really in anything other than when it hit their desk. So sometimes you'll have a a decision on the 99th day that says, well, this was a dumb protest. So um, I've never heard them phrase it exactly that way, but I I have seen what boils down to that. So that actually does not end the process. The company who filed the protest can then say, well, I still don't like that. And they can keep Mm. going. And there's a whole, I sat through about a six hour class on this process. And there is so much to it that once you get to a certain point, it is in the contractor's best interest, the winning company that is, that is being essentially sued to hire a lawyer. And they're typically K street lawyers that are, you know, the big dogs that they're bringing in. They're not, they're not hired. This is not their in, in-house legal counsel. They're, they're acknowledging that this is a really big deal. Wow. Let's just back up again really quick. So the decision is made. The companies who didn't win have an opportunity to protest. And my understanding, Ashley, is that they can do that in three different ways. They can do it within the agency. They can do it with the government accountability office, or they can do it in federal court. But it, Sounds like most companies choose to go to the GAO because that 100-day period basically stops everything in in its tracks, right? And if you go to federal court, it doesn't necessarily stop the work from going forward unless you are able to get a judge to issue an order that it needs to be stopped. That is correct. I wasn't sure how far in depth we wanted to go. You know me. I like the weeds. (laughs) Um. (laughs) The stop work order tends to be the goal. And this is pure speculation. I don't think anybody's ever going to be able to prove it because intent is super difficult to prove. But the DOD has some lobbyists working right now to change the regulations because 
the perception is, and perception is reality in most cases, that companies will file protests specifically if they're the incumbent so that the stop work order is put in place for the new contractor and the incumbent can continue to work because yeah. the customer may or may not want a break in service. This is not something that anybody has proven, but that's the perception. And that's why DOD wants it changed. And we are really grateful that there's some lobbyists working on that. It's a complex process because we want to avoid the monopolies, right? I live in, in Hampton Roads, Virginia, and we have two shipyards. And when you're dealing with shipyards, specifically the Newport News shipbuilding, you've got Huntington Ingalls that is the prime contractor there. So anything that goes there is going through Huntington Ingalls. There is no real, if, if, if the government decides that their carrier is going to be built there, going to be built there. The challenge comes in when people start to say, that's not fair. And they have to prove that it can't be done by a small business. So you've got various rankings of the size of the business based on revenue. So we want to make sure that service disabled veteran-owned small businesses, businesses in hub zones, businesses owned by women, and tribal companies have the opportunity because they don't have that big name, that they don't have their name plastered all over the, the shipyard. It's not on a crane somewhere. That's really the goal is to make sure that there's a fair chance that everybody has the opportunity to bid. In some cases, I've filled out a few of these for Department of State. I've never done it with Department of Defense, that they'll put out what is referred to as a source of sought, and they'll see a very abbreviated version of a, of a proposal, typically two to three pages, saying, yes, we think we can do this. We, we think you should release this request for proposal at the small business level. That's part one. And then that's re really when you start getting into the, are you sure that this small business can perform the work? And that's, that's where we get into the weeds of, of the particulars of, of grounds for protest and, and things like that. Wow. So there are lots of good reasons that people file protests. And then there are not great reasons. And those not great reasons are very squishy. We can never prove that it's not a good reason. Well, a GAO can say this doesn't stand up, but nobody's going to nobody's gonna come out and accuse this company that has been protesting. You're doing this so that you can keep doing the work. Nobody's really going to come out and say that because that would be bad for everybody, including the government. So during that 100-day period, what happens? I'm trying to get a sense of how expensive this process is and how you would evaluate sort of the hassle of the process versus the value of the contracted issue? That is a good question. The craziest protest experience that I've ever had has lasted over a year. Wow. And what keeps happening every time we reach a point that a decision has to be made, if they continue the stop work order, that means that the current company that is performing the work is going to get an extension. And they'll keep getting extensions because, especially in the case of Department of State, you're dealing in, in most cases with a foreign government. And the foreign government pretty much does not care that you've got private industries arguing over who can do the work better if we really want to oversimplify it. So they're essentially saying, while you guys get that together, we want our project to continue. So there's some costs associated with that. One of the reasons maybe that it was rebid to begin with is that they thought that it was becoming too expensive and they wanted to try to 
decrease the scope and cost. And in doing that, we entered this protest cycle and the larger contract that is possibly more costly is continuing. Wow. So Ashley, what do you see that could make this process better? One thing that I have heard that isn't, this is not an original thought. Somebody else has brought this up in multiple different meetings that if a company files a protest that GAO finds to be completely unfounded to the point that it seems like it was a stalling tactic, that perhaps they pay the legal fees. Yeah. And that would be an incentive for a company to say, do we really want to go there? Because K Street lawyers ain't cheap. Exactly. I know my husband used to be one. <laughs> so there's there's so many different pieces to it. And that's where you start to get into these conversations of, well, it's complicated. Well, you don't know the whole story. And that's essentially where we hit this, this stopping point that nobody's fixing or changing anything because nobody can agree on what the problem is. Is the problem that people can file protests willy-nilly? Is the problem that the technical requirements were not specific enough? And so there's room for interpretation. And that's where we're, we're, we're creating these, these questions. And by that, Ashley, you mean that the government didn't do a good enough job writing the request for proposal. Correct. And so it was impossible for people to fairly respond to it because the government actually didn't do its job in creating the proposal in the first place. That is one criticism that I have heard thrown around. And I have okay. actually read some requests for proposals that I, you just have no idea what they're asking. And the part of the process from the very beginning is that you are able to submit questions to the contracting office. Hey, what did you really mean on page seven where you asked for blank? And then they'll give you the answers. So that does help, but it does kind of beg the question. If you've got 10 companies asking the same question, that may need to go down in your lessons learned register for your next request for proposal for the same, mm. same bureau. Hey, let's remember that this was a problem last time because I typically will see the same sometimes even the same boilerplate verbiage that we asked the question of the last time we saw this request for proposal. Oh, wow. So I'm trying to think of a succinct way to say, like, here are the benefits of this process. Because as you listen to it, it just sounds like a nightmare, right? And there's a part of me that thinks, well, if I'm an officer in the State Department and I've worked with Ashley's company six times and I know they're the best, can't I just call up Ashley's company when I have a new project and ask them to take it? And that would be sole source. And sole source is the goal for everybody. In my personal experience, this is one of those this is one of those subjects that I don't know anybody who's an expert in all aspects. Even the K Street lawyers, they've got their you you pick your lawyer based on what the problem is and where their specialty is. Nobody really can can grasp the entire acquisition process. So the only time I've ever seen a sole source is with a tribal company. That is really common, actually. I heard about one a couple of weeks ago. And that has its benefits. But as you just said, there are, there are some benefits. For example, when an IDIQ ends and they can't put out another contract under that contract vehicle and they have to choose new vendors... They can't just say, hey, you guys did a really great job. We want to keep you. So you get to keep going. 
that would be sole source because, because it's not going out under the initial contract vehicle. You're not following this, the, the original rules of engagement, things have changed. You only get a maximum of maybe six years of a period of performance. I think I've seen base year plus five is the most I've seen. And the, per the federal acquisition regulation, the FAR, they're typically base plus four. There's a certain number of extensions that the FAR will allow. And typically those have to do with if the government, if the customer is having issues developing their, their new request for proposal, they'll have to give the current contractors an extension before we even talk about protests, before we even talk about the RFP or the proposal process altogether. And one problem that I have seen happen so many times, and it just causes so much frustration, is throughout the process of, of someone having a contract for, for base year plus four years, so five years, is that that company is going to grow. And, and God willing, right? So at the end of that time period, if that contract, when it's recompeted, is only a small business set aside, the incumbent's not eligible. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze. And its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. 
their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code podcast 15. So big picture, this matters because the government is a really good customer, right? Uh If I if I'm a business, I want a customer like the government, which I know will be able to pay me for my work. And I know we'll have more business and we'll have lots of needs. And so this is something that I want. And all of these rules, as frustrating as they sound, are there because one, it's public money being spent. Two, you can see the potential for corruption and cronyism absent these rules. And that's what necessitates the protest process, too, right? Because we could have these rules, but the whole thing could be a farce, ultimately, because people will trade in relationships no matter what process is wrapped around a contract. It's just the protest process itself needs to be tightened up. Is that what you see? Yes, absolutely. People do deserve the opportunity to speak their piece, to say, I really think you misinterpreted what I was saying. They deserve that. What what we want to limit is how many times they can say, but you still don't get it. No, they got it. They just didn't agree with you. So, or they're never going to get it. I'm so sorry that happened and you'll get them next time. This all sounds really far removed from the voter. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking just this is such a good reminder that there is politics and there is the complexity of running the federal government and that there are entire industries, that there are entire careers built around the minutia of picking contractors within the federal government, which we're just talking about one expert in one aspect of one department, the State Department. I mean, I just can't fathom the amount and breadth of like these sort of contracting decisions being made across the entire federal government. Not to mention that you have these kind of decisions being made in state government. I mean, not to this level, but there are con- there's definitely requests for proposals and contracting and how are we going to pick a contractor and what's the fair way to do this? Like, it's just, it's sort of mind blowing. I was a little young when this happened, but I think there was a really big deal about Dick Cheney with this, that people People felt that that the selection process for the contractor was unfair. That oh, yeah, the government they picked was Halliburton, his former company. Yes. I have, I have a feeling we're all going to be reminded of that story when the movie about Dick Cheney's life comes out around Christmas. So, Ashley, I, I was just my train of thought there was this is so far removed from the voter. What role, if any, does Congress have in oversight of this process itself? Budgeting. Hmm. And so with that budgeting process, could Congress substantively change the way that protests happen? I believe the only thing that really would change the protest process would have to happen in Congress because it would have to be a change to the law. So actual regulations govern this process and Congress could change those. Is there any motivation for Congress to do that outside of, I guess, lobbying? The fact that it's really far removed 
really answers that that question for many I've I've called my my local representatives and I've essentially gotten the answer of what? So yeah, um, I can I can imagine. <laughs> so it's difficult to get people who aren't in this world. And when you when you get into this world, you're so far down in the weeds that not only have does does the person run the risk of becoming completely politically neutral because you start to look at every politician like, well, <laughs> it could really go either way. You find yourself almost as as part of a separate population. And you have to explain everything about what you're talking about before you get into your real questions, especially when you're dealing with your government officials who are not working in this in this field. So there, when 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 you're dealing with DOD acquisitions, there is a fair a fair amount of involvement from Congress because everything has to go through ultimately has to go through the Secretary of Defense in one capacity or another. It'll go through the Undersecretary, and there's this whole complicated process. And I have not been able to pass that class in the defense acquisition <laughs> university yet. So, cause it's that complicated. Yeah. So I think DOD is really the, the, the agency to change these regulations because they have the most visibility that, and when you ask the average person about government contracts, they're going to think about DOD. They're going to think about building major weapon systems or major information systems. They're not going to think about the contract that sent three security advisors to work on the community policing program in Beirut, Lebanon. Mm. That's going to be completely mind-blowing to them. Yeah, when, I was going to say, most people don't know we have a community policing program in Beirut, Lebanon. Let's be real. Actually, what's, what really surprises me sometimes, and it's because, again, I'm, I'm in my own world. I'm surrounded by other contractors all the time. So I don't ever really realize that people don't know the complexities of foreign military sales. So when people start talking about Saudi Arabia, I want to say, do you realize that we have a contract in Saudi Arabia that we send English teachers to teach the Royal Saudi Airmen English so that they can come to the U.S. and learn to work on, I believe. They definitely don't know that, actually. Yes, they don't know that. And I just become completely surprised that this stuff isn't common knowledge. And there's a program that's been going on for, I think I looked it up somewhere, it said something about 15 years, that the U.S. has provided subject matter experts in law enforcement training to the Palestinian Authority Security Forces. Wow. And that completely blows people's minds, right? And that's a joint effort between the Department of State and the U.S. Security Coordinator. That is a DOD position. So... When someone hears we're spending money in Palestine, people's minds just completely explode. And it's not that it's a secret, right? It's all no. public record. It's just that we don't have the, it's just too big. We just don't have the ability to take all of this information in. True. And if you were to go into Indeed right now and type in training mentor in Amman, Jordan, you would find a few companies that are hiring trainers for the mobile training team. And it would talk all about their their role with the Palestinian Authority Security Forces. It would talk about working at the... Um, <laughs> we speak in acronyms constantly, and I need an acronym dictionary for, for the people who are not in the microcosm of the government contracting world. I think this leads me to what could be our last question, because thinking again about the connection between what's happening and the voter. 
So just a reminder, this whole universe lives within the executive branch, and the only person in the executive branch that we vote for is the president. And so I'm wondering how much of a difference do you see with changing administrations in this world? Does it matter or is this process just so big that it's bigger than one administration? That would have to mean that the incoming president truly understood the entire acquisition process. And I don't know that that's possible for really anybody. Our current administration is making changes in the Middle East. So with this change in administration, we're seeing changes in those programs, especially in Palestine. Part of us always wonders, do they know what's going on in Africa? Do they know what the peacekeeping missions in Guinea or Mauritania or Burkina Faso? Do they know? I mean, it's impossible for the president to fully understand everything that's going on in the acquisition process and everything we're spending money on. So they may come in and say, we're going to make changes in government contracts on the DOD side. And actually, Mattis is is pretty serious about that. He was a big advocate for the lowest price technically acceptable evaluation criteria, which is again, that's based on opinion at this point of whether or not that's the best the best path. So we will see some changes on that side, but they may have no idea what else is going on. And that's going to be the that's that's going to essentially be up to the secretary of state. Ashley, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Is there anything that you haven't talked about that you really think our listeners need to know? There is a project that is really close to my heart that I think answers some major things that have gone on in the last few months, last year or so. And there's a program in Central America that's called the Central America Regional Security Initiative. And the subsidiary of that is the Central America Police Reform Initiative. The primary focus of that program right now is in the Northern Triangle. I have worked in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, and Panama, and Costa Rica. And when I hear people talking about MS-13 and talking about these, we've all heard the term of how some people feel about these countries. And it just is so shocking to me because, again, we're living in this microcosm of, of the contractors that we know. We've been to, I've been to Guatemala City. I've, I've had the opportunity to travel around. And there are parts of it that are not someplace that I'd walk around at night. But there's places here that I wouldn't walk around at night. These are beautiful countries with amazing people. And there's bad people, just like there are here. And it breaks my heart to hear generalizations made about these these places that these local the local governments within Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador are making the best effort they can. They're even coordinating with the US government to try to reform the national police, to try to reform their correction systems, their rule of law systems. They're trying to modernize everything to get away from, you know, relying on paper records. They're making an effort. And I think that is completely ignored by most people because one, they aren't exposed to it. But I really wish that people had the opportunity to to learn more about that and maybe it would shape their opinions a little bit differently of these locations and of the people who are leaving those locations to come here for whatever reason. However they're coming here, whatever they're doing, perhaps it would it would change their perspective. 
And there was a New York Times article that came out really recently about El Salvador. And the conversation was around MS-13. And it made mention of the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, which is the governing bureau over the Central America Regional Security Initiative. And they were talking about the training that is being provided to the national police in El Salvador. They're talking about the special weapons teams that they're, to use U.S. terminology, emergency response teams, and how everybody's making an effort to try to make these places safer and to try to make people feel like they don't need to hide from the government. They don't need to hide from whatever threat that they can feel safe in their own country. And I'm really it, it just one of those warm, fuzzy feelings. So that's the good that we're able to contribute. If somebody who felt, you know, blank hole countries could stand on the side of a mountain in Tegucigalpa and look down over the city and just think, I can't imagine someone thinking that this isn't, this isn't a beautiful mountain and that this city does not have amazing potential if these initiatives keep going. Mm. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ashley and she wanted to make sure that we pointed out, which I feel like should be a constant disclaimer, you know, time is finite. And so we talked about one one hundred thousandth of the world of government contracts in that discussion as we always just scratch the surface of any issue. But we hope we sparked your interest in learning more about that world. So what's on your mind outside of politics, Sarah? I mean, it's just Christmas, Christmas, all day Christmas, all the time. So much Christmas. It's like it's like peak Christmas time right now. My kids are about to get off school. We had our holiday open house and a Christmas concert and the choir Christmas party on Sunday. So like it just it's all I'm organizing where we're going when, making sure there are no presents left off. It's just it's I, mean, I feel like I'm on that part of the roller coaster. Click, 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 going up. So are you enjoying it or are you just click clicking? No, no, I love Christmas. I'm all in. I'm really excited right now because after my holiday open house, it's like really good treat time. Like people bring you a lot of like like biscotti and we got some chocolates and somebody brought us a pie. And like last week I was kind of bemoaning the absence of treats in my home because I really love that part of the holidays where you're like, mmm, I have like 16 different kind of cookies to try. What shall I have for afternoon treat or breakfast dessert, which I think is really important over the holidays. I'm fully invested in the breakfast dessert situation from like now until New Year's. And I'm not I'm not sad about it. I'll probably gain some weight. I don't care. Like, I just love the festive food situation that has now hit my house in full force. And I most of my stuff's done, so I don't feel stressed about like getting stuff done. I've been very inspired by your holiday open house. So I'm having a New Year's Eve open house because I love mm. that idea. And we had this discussion on the Nuance Life about the importance of hospitality and specifically yep. of inviting people into your homes. And I thought, you know what? I'm starting my year that way. I'm going to close really this fun. one out and launch into the new year that way. We had about 60 people. It's always really fun to see all the different people from different parts of our life. We've done this every year except for one since we moved back to Paducah in 2009. And, you know, it's just so fun. It wears me out, though. I literally, I put food all over the house. I don't even put food in the kitchen. I turned the lights off. People still congregate in there. I'm like, there's nothing in here, y'all. I put everything in other parts of the house. I have this big old house. Everybody's crowded into the kitchen. I'm like, it wears me out. People love a kitchen. It's just a comfortable place to be. 
Well, Nicholas and I were talking about, too, speaking of the new year and hospitality, we want to set, like, hospitality goals, like how many dinner parties we want to have, that kind of thing. So that's that's how we – because if you, if you have – it's like reading. If you have a reading goal, for me, if I have a number that I know I'm trying to get to, it keeps it in the forefront of my mind. That stresses me out, but I definitely am setting – I know it does. I'm definitely setting the intention of inviting more people into my home next year. I love it. So I am going to take this in a totally different direction and tell you that we went to see Aquaman. Okay, tell me. I love that guy. He's so hot. Well, you need to feel that way if you're going to go see Aquaman because the movie is about Jason Momoa is an attractive man. And look at him now in the water. Look at him just out of the water. Look at him in the desert. Yeah. I don't really want to see the movie. It looked kind of dumb. I'm going to be real with you. Well, you have to know what you're getting into with Aquaman, right? It's not out yet. We went to some special showing because of Amazon Prime or something, which made Chad really happy. (laughs) It was fine. I love the superhero genre. I unapologetically love these movies. I do think, and I can't believe I have an opinion on this, but I do think as a general rule, the Marvel movies are better than the DC movies with the very specific exception of Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, that's hard, though, because some of the Batman ones are really good. They just haven't been recently. Some of them are really good and some of them are really not good. And I feel like mm. I don't like all the combinations of superheroes. So I was happy that this was just an Aquaman movie instead of here are 600 superheroes. I was able to learn about what is his backstory. There's just not a lot of plot happening here. And I think that I have two specific problems with it. And I'm anxious to hear from our listeners because I know lots of you also love this genre. My first problem is that they were trying to do Wakanda in the water. Mm. And that meant, one, that you're trying to piggyback on something that was so special because we'd never seen it before. Right? What made Wakanda so awesome? We just hadn't ever seen anything like it. And now we've seen it. And you did it in the water, meaning it's just all CGI. This movie just wears me out with the CGI. Okay, my second problem, and I have a proposed solution for the world stemming from (laughs) my thoughts about this problem. I felt that Aquaman represented an unfortunate step backwards in the thoughtfulness that has been brought to many movies lately about representation of different groups. Mm, Because Aquaman was very much like, here are the evil pirates. They are all black men. Oh, come on, man. Here here are the Atlanteans. They are all white. That's no good. Nicole Kidman's costuming and hair was really cool, but the younger woman in the movie, Princess Mara, was, like, highly sexualized. They gave her aerial hair. I just felt like it was a step backward from the real progress that the film industry is making. And so here's my proposed solution, because Aquaman is not alone in this regard. I think companies should have a chief thoughtfulness officer. Just (laughs) someone who, like, sits down once we have an idea. This would help commercials a lot. Another issue in Aquaman, you know, a lot of kids are going to go see this movie, and the fact that he and his dad are basically binge drinkers is a part of the story. Uh, Okay, not helpful. Just You just need somebody to, like, listen to all the ideas and say, did you think about this? Here's how this might affect other human beings. I feel like some very unfortunate Super Bowl commercials could have been prevented if a chief thoughtfulness officer had been in the picture. So that's my proposed solution. But overall, it was fun. He's a lovely person. You should have gone and seen Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Everybody loves that stinking I know. There's so many movies I want to see. Well, yeah, and Queen of Scots comes out this weekend. 
And Vice is coming out. The new Mary yep. Poppins I'm excited about. There's lots of good stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm all in. I'm going to see movies all Christmas break, which is uh, going to be problematic because I have like seven books to read before the end of the year as well. I'm going to have to split up my leisure time well. You can do it. You can do it. Thank you. Thank you for the vote of confidence. Thank you all for joining us for this episode of Pantsuit Politics. We're really excited about all of the follow-ups we have to share with you from the legislators and candidates for office that we've talked with. So even though our content coming soon is going to be pre-recorded, it's going to be really good and we'll still be around on Patreon and IGTV and elsewhere. So keep checking in with us. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. And thanks for making us sound better and smarter, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our production assistant, which means we could not live without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you so much, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help make the show better. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband Nicholas Holland, and my husband Chad Silvers. Learn more about our live events that we're involved in and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with us and members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.